0: To you all this morning. Welcome to Woven. On this Sunday, on this beautiful day, we have been talking in a series called Sanctifying Monday to Friday. And I've been talking about work and spirituality. And in this series, what I've been attempting to do is to present a holistic theological perspective on work. And by holistic, I mean this. Oftentimes we can see work as just a means to an end. Work is just a means uh, to provide food on the table, to keep the lights on. Work is just a means to an end where perhaps with a little bit of extra on the side, I can bless the church, bless people, and I can use my money in order to just live. Perhaps my workplace is just a means to an end where I can reach and save souls and evangelize people in the office or maybe in the workplace Bible study afterwards. Work itself is just a means to those ends. But I wonder what it would be like if we saw work not just as a means to an end, but actually what if work is the end itself? What if work is the purpose? What if work is what we're called to? And I think we're wrestling with that. For some of us, Perhaps you might feel this, that work is an ends in itself. This is what I'm called to do. This is what I feel strongly about. This is how I um, feel God's pleasure, so to speak. And yet, there are others that might say, you know, it's just a job. It's just a job. It gives me a paycheck. I don't really see any of this kind of spiritual mumbo-jumbo that you're talking about, Pastor. And for me, all it does is it puts food on the table. And I think we have two perspectives and Honestly, I understand both. I understand both. And my hope is that at least through this series that not so much I'll be giving you the answers, but that at least it will trigger the right questions. And last Friday we had our first reframe course viewing in my house and we had a very very interesting conversation. I think we had more important questions than we had answers. And I think that's not bad because even when you look in scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes What is the book of Ecclesiastes but a bunch of questions again and again? What does this mean? What is this about? What's the purpose of this? And at the end, he does arrive at the very simple answer. I've seen that there's nothing better for a man or a woman to eat, drink, and enjoy what God has blessed us with. This is a a gift from God. And so hopefully at least... We're, answer, we're asking the right questions and maybe even arriving at very simple answers. You know, the answers are not very complicated. Maybe it just comes down to that simple thing, gratitude. I'm grateful for the gift that God has given me today of my daily bread, of being able to work with my hands and in the end, go to sleep. And to sleep without turning and tossing and, and in the end, that's a blessing. So my hope is at least we'll trigger the right questions. I also hope that this series um, will have an outlasting, outsized effect from just this series. It's a 10-week series, maybe a little bit more. It's going to last throughout the season of fall. But I wonder if this series is actually going to trigger a bigger conversation about our direction, our vision, and calling as a church. Um, We do have a discernment committee at this time that's beginning to converse about these things. Who are we as a church? Are we strictly suburban? Why is it that we're drawing from all different parts of the city? We've got a bunch of people out today for different reasons. But still, what is our calling? What is our focus and direction as a church? And I think this series is just the right series for that conversation. What are we aiming to be? Where are we striving to uh, have our most influence? And so I think this series and my hope uh, is, is for it to have an outsized effect, not just for this 10 weeks, but really to kind of... Um, help facilitate the right questions we ask as we, as we uh, get into our third year together as a congregation. So, today I'd like to talk through Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. You can find this passage inside of your bulletin. It's just two verses, and this verse is chosen because it's the same, uh, it's a, it corresponds with our reframe course. So this coming Friday at my house, if you're going to be there, we're going to be looking at Romans 1 to 2 out of reframe lesson 2. And these two verses are um, verses that as a younger man I memorized. It's Paul that's speaking here. The flow of his thought is always very step by step, very logical. And so I'm going to see if by the end of today's sermon I can get you to memorize Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 as well. And as we flow, as we track with his flow of thought, hopefully, um, or maybe even you can take this verse and attempt to memorize it this week. It's not very hard. And so let's begin with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We can pull that up on the screen. Verse 1. Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So we're going to stop right there. What Paul is saying is, therefore, in view of God's grace, in view of his blessings in your life, in view of the fact that you woke up this morning, that you have your daily bread on the table, that you're not disabled, that you're able to have a livelihood in view of so many blessings in your life, in view of God's mercies. And whenever Paul speaks, he inflates, he, 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 he deals in superlatives in, in terms of God's tremendous, tremendous mercies and his outpouring in view of God's mercies. Actually, if he starts off this chapter, therefore, that almost behooves us to look at what he's saying before in chapter 11. And incidentally, if you look at chapter 11, the context for our gratitude in this case is actually the multi-ethnic church. Paul's been talking to Romans. Romans were not Jews. And he was saying to them, listen, the fact that you are grafted into this Jewish religion, you're not even supposed to be here. But the fact that you are being grafted into the Jewish root It's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. You're fortunate to even be considered part of this project. In other words, what Paul is talking about is the beginnings of the multi-ethnic church. So in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, and in your own life, the tremendous mercies of God, in our lives, the things that we have to be grateful for, gratitude, 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 is always where (laughs) I, I seem to mention that at least once in all of my sermons. In view of God's mercies, he says this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So, starting off with gratitude, therefore, in view of so many blessings that God gives us, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is a bit of an oxymoron because a sacrifice is something that is killed. A sacrifice is something that is dead. So he's saying offer yourself as a live sacrifice. I'm learning in my own life and the years, in the past year or so, that really it honors God to come before him in worship with something to give. Um, To not just come with empty hands. It honors God. I'm realizing there's something to this whole thing. You know, we're approaching the Day of Atonement, the Jewish uh, Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. And in the Jewish religion, they'd have to come and bring a sacrifice. There's something to that. There's something to actually bringing something with our hands. But what he says here is, in view of God's mercies, so many mercies, come worship God, but don't come with something dead and strangled. Or don't come with something that's bleeding all over the place. Come with what? Yourself. In view of God's mercies, bring yourself as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice, day in and day out, and I think this is where we connect to the whole work thing, the whole work series, that our sacrifices are not just for Sunday, but we live, we live out our sacrifice Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, including Sunday. In other words, the living sacrifice is us. We sacrifice ourselves. We sacrifice me. We sacrifice our lives. And to think about what sacrifice looks like for you and how you are a living sacrifice. And you see, once we understand this, you know, we sing songs of passion every Sunday morning. For me, I sacrifice my vocal cords. I sacrifice whether I feel like it or not. I give up a sacrifice of praise. But the thing is, a living sacrifice continues on Monday morning. We worship God throughout the week. And we realize that worship is actually not just a Sunday thing. Worship happens here But friends, that passion that you carry, I want to worship you, God, we can bring with us come Monday morning while we're on our commute, as we're back in the real world, so to speak. That's where real worship happens, and that's exactly what Paul says. So you can see the logical train of his thought. Paul starts off by saying, in view of God's mercies, be grateful. In all of the gratitude that we have, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And he says, this is your true and proper worship. This is what real worship is. Real worship is not just what we do here from 10.30 to about noon on Sunday mornings. I mean, it is that. But what Paul is saying is the living sacrifice, the real worship is an ongoing, living, breathing, daily thing, work even included. This is your spiritual or your true or rational act of worship. The Greek, I like this, the Greek word there is logikain or logikos, which is where you get that, the English word logical. And that's why in some translations it'll say, this is your rational, this is your logical act of worship. In other words, the logical progression in all of this, the logical progression as we begin with gratitude to a living sacrifice is that, I mean, logically this is how we respond. This is our logical act of worship. So, friends, the question then is, how do I logically worship? How do I offer myself as a living sacrifice come Monday morning? When I'm in school, when I'm parenting, when I'm at work, what does this look like? What does worship look like in the quote-unquote real world? And this is where he gets into it in verse 2. If we are offering ourselves as living sacrifices, how do we do that? He says, do not conform to the pattern. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The word pattern there in the Greek, the root word is schema. Schema. And if that sounds familiar, that's where we derive the English word schematic. Schematics, blueprints, designs. In other words, what's being communicated here is: do not conform to the blueprint of this world. Don't conform to the designs of this world, the patterns of this world. And in a moment here, I'm going to pull up a, uh, a table with two sides. On the left-hand side, it's going to list the patterns, the schematics, the mental thought patterns of this world. Because Paul says, if we're going to live as sac- if we're going to be living sacrifices. We can't think the way the world thinks anymore. Oh, man. And he says, don't conform. This is where it gets fun. Don't conform any longer. Don't conform. When I was in my early 20s and I left the East Coast and I kind of left the marching, kind of the robot race, and I went to the West Coast and um, I felt like I landed in the land of nonconformity. I was in Seattle, um, it was the home of, what is that? Alternative, garage band, grunge rock. I started growing out a little bit of facial hair, and I was growing my hair out, and I was drinking alternative coffee. I wouldn't drink any of that Starbucks stuff, and listening to alt rock. And I was a nonconformist, and I was feeling it, especially because I lived on the West Coast. Even when I first moved here to Houston, I was like, man, I'm living in the suburbs and I'm kind of inside of a box and I feel like I'm conforming and I wanted to kind of, but now I've pretty much drank the Kool-Aid and I'm part of, and you know, friends, it's interesting, you know, our our kids, I know that there are some uh, grown kids here or growing kids and I think there's going to come a day when our own children, raised in the suburbs, they're going to want to strike out and not conform any longer, having lived and been raised Anyway, the point I'm making is this. When we think about nonconformity, the church is the last thing that often comes to mind. Going to church, that's like conforming. But when you really delve into it, into the scriptures, into what Jesus is saying in the gospels, there was no one more alt-rock than him. There was no one more nonconformist than Jesus. There was no one, and friends, you have to read the Gospels and let it speak for itself. Let it speak for itself. There was no one more nonconformist than the earliest Christians. In fact, secular Roman sources said, man, those Christians are weird. They do things that are totally off the charts, just nonconformist. They stand when everyone else bows, and they bow when everyone else stands. They march to a different drummer. And my, oh my, how they love one another is what one Roman historian said. Those early Christians were not understood. That's why they were killed. Many times they were killed for a misunderstanding. Brought up on trumped up charges of idolatry. They eat a man's flesh and drink his blood. They worship a donkey. There were misunderstandings they were the original nonconformists. The point I'm making is, friends, nonconformity to the pattern of this world. If we're going to talk about work, we have to identify what the patterns of this world are and understand what nonconformity means. And I'm going to pull that up in a minute here with the table. But let me continue. Let me complete this verse. So, logically, have you gotten the flow of Paul's thought that this is easy to memorize? Memorize it this week. Romans 12:1. In view of God's abundant mercies in our lives, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. Not just Sunday, our spiritual act of worship. What is our spiritual act of worship? Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Don't conform. One last thing about that word conform. One last thing. In the Greek, that word conform is actually in a passive tense. It's in a passive sense. In other words, this can accurately be translated, not just do not conform, but do not... Help me out. Yes. Don't be conformed. If I watch 20 minutes of television, I either want to eat something or drink something or buy something or I I feel like I, I, I I, I need something. And right there I can see the, the, the passive sense, I'm being conformed. In many ways, we are being conformed to the patterns of this world. It's not something that we actively do, but like robots, we don't even realize that I, I, will, I will comply. I will comply and we just kind of go with the flow because we're being conformed in the passive sense. And so Paul says, live in non-conformity. And how do we live in nonconformity but by being transformed by the renewing of our mind? Being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lots of times the real trick is not so much living according to a different drummer or marching against the stream, it's recognizing what recognizing that we're part of you know, we're 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 in it already. We fail to recognize. Being transformed by the renewing of our minds as we first recognize what the patterns are and therefore can live in a different way. Renewing of the mind, renewing of the mind, and that's the second column in the table. We'll talk about that. Almost there. Renewing of our mind and recognizing what the alt way truly is, what the alternative way truly is. And finally, I just got to close this off because it's such a complete thought, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Have you ever met anybody or even perhaps yourself said, I I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know what God's will is right now. I don't know what God's will is for my career. I don't know what God's will is. One of the problems might be we have too many voices that are conforming us, that we can't hear God's will. Maybe what's prescribed is a season of just getting off Facebook or maybe not turning on the tube or maybe having a disciplined space of silence. But for whatever reason, sometimes we might just need to get away from all the voices of conformity in the world so that we can hear what God's will is. Don't conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to know what God's will is. And with that, I'd like to get into this table. In this table, what you'll see on the left-hand side are the thought patterns of this world. And this is in your notes as well. The thought patterns of this world, these are the, these are, this is how we're being conformed. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And I'll go ahead and just launch into that first one. The first one is, I did it my way. <laughs> I think there is nothing more pernicious and dangerous than that famous Frank Sinatra song. I don't know why more people don't talk about it. Because if you ever find somebody that at the end of their life who's crooning into a microphone, has got white hair, says, I did it my way, and you look behind him and there's like a wake of destruction. You did it your way. Yeah, you did it your way. But you've hurt so many people. You've hurt yourself. Doing it my way, friends, I'm not even just, I'm not even being religious right now. I'm just straight, just straight up I can tell you, if I did everything my way, things would not be good. And it takes a common sense person to recognize doing things my way doesn't always turn out well. Many, many mistakes come up. I have, in, I have incredible blind spots myopia and if i do it my way then i'm really this is the narrative of american rugged individualism so now we're talking about culture if we want to recognize the thought patterns we have to talk about culture we have to talk about american culture american culture prizes the lone cowboy with his hat and his boots riding off into the sunset by himself here i go again on my own And that, I think, is counter to the spirit of the Scriptures. And so in the right-hand column, if the left-hand column is the thought pattern of the world, what is the renewing of our mind? What is the counter-narrative of Scripture? It is community, community, community. If you want to look at the order of creation, let's look at the order of creation, right? Single-celled amoeba or, you know, microorganisms, and then you get up to bugs, And then lizards and fish and maybe hamsters and dogs and puppies and kittens. And then mammals and humans. And then above humans, angels. And then above angels, maybe archangels. And above that, God. Surely, at our highest level of being in the order of creation, God is an individualist. Is he not? God did it on his own. God was by himself. Actually, the answer is God lives in community. We believe as Christians we worship one God, but that one God lives in three persons. This is the beauty of Christianity, friends. I can't talk at length about the Trinity and Trinitarian theology today, but this is why I love being a Christian. Because in the very DNA of our religion itself, what we have is community. Not individualism, but in the DNA of our God, in His very being, one God in three persons What we're talking about is at the highest level of order, at the highest level of being, there is no individualism. The highest level of being, the highest, this is getting philosophical, this is where I get excited. This is where it's getting philosophical. The highest level of being, ontological being, at the highest level is community, not individualism. Friends, this is a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of our God and a beautiful picture, what does that mean for us? There's a prayer that I've been praying for my church, for, for this church. And it's a prayer of Thomas Merton from the seven-story mountain. You'll find it on the inside flap of your bulletin. You can pray this too. If you don't know how to pray for Woven, just pray these words. And it goes like this. Oh God, we, we, plural, our community, we are one with you. You've made us one with you. You've taught us that if we are open to one another, you dwell in us. Help us to preserve this openness and to fight for it with all of our hearts. You hear that? Churches can find many reasons to fight. But if there's a good thing to fight for, isn't that a good one? To fight for openness, to fight to keep our hearts open and vulnerable to one another. The essence of community, and we'll talk about vulnerability, but the essence of community. Or community, essentially, is, is, it is the counter-narrative of Scripture. Good, that's the first one. Individualism, not the way. And you know, more and more people are recognizing this. People are recognizing we want to get back to our community. We live in atomized societies where I've lived already in three parts, three coasts of this country we're no longer in that strong communal rootedness of our little village where we grew up and our grandkids will grow up. You know, that adds to the problem and the challenge. We have to find community. A lot of us are looking for community. I think we have a wonderful community here at Woven. This second one, the second, second thought pattern of the world, and by no means is this list exhaustive. That's why I've listed more Boxes there if you have any thoughts to fill it out. Here's a good one survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Now, our young people here, our teens, how many of you have learned about Darwin in school? Raise your hand. You're not young. <laughs> Peter, you haven't learned about Darwin yet? Evolution? Okay. You've learned about Darwin? So let me tell you this when you learned about Darwin, what class was it in? Science earth life something like that or science and what darwin basically taught is that if you have a frog a little poisonous frog ribbit and he's not poisonous enough he gets eaten and destroyed but you have another frog who's more poisonous and he survives because everything that licks him dies and therefore he lives and passes on his genetics and there's something called adaptation and then you have the most poisonous frogs ever Or you have antelope that are fast. The slow ones get eaten, so they adapt and become faster and quicker. Or perhaps a stronger animal. Did you know, now track with me, young people, that this theory of evolution, or this what I'll call Darwinianism, it's Darwin, Darwinianism, it doesn't just apply to biology. You know that? Darwinianism is not exclusively limited to just biology, it applies to free market economics, it applies to business. If you're in business and you're in competition, which business is going to survive? The one that adapts quicker, the one that markets better, the one that reaches out better, the one that sells better products, has better quality control. Darwinianism is not just limited to science class and biology. And when you get older, and learn this now because I'm helping you, it's gonna get you an extra A in class. It's gonna apply to economics. Darwinianism applies to organizational theory, social theory. Darwinianism is very American, friends. Capitalism is Darwinian. Free market economics is Darwinian. If you are stronger, if you can beat your competition, you will survive. If you cannot keep up, you will die. Survival of the fittest is one of the strong, and I'm not, I'm not bemoaning this. I'm not, I'm not talking down on it, but it is very American. It is very American. The problem is... Either Jesus wasn't American enough or he was just too radical. This is getting back to what I was saying before. He was too, too what's nonconformist because in the teaching of Jesus, you have him in the Beatitudes like Luke chapter 6 saying things like, blessed are the poor because you will be rich. There, I got it. He was a communist. Not exactly. I'm not going to go there. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry, because you're going to be fed. Blessed are you who weep. Let me just clarify once again. I No, Jesus was not a communist. I, I realize this sermon can kind of go south politically, and if you're listening on the podcast, don't misjudge. Don't make any judge. I know this is political season. I am not saying this is my endorsement by no means, okay? I'm not talking politics. I'm just talking about the radical, messed up, alternative, not messed up, but beautiful, Alternative view of Jesus. He shows us something that just completely blows us out of the water because even I know in order to be healthy, in order to be a healthy church, we have to do things to to be strong. I have to do things to survive, even physiologically, in our cells, the healthiest cells survive. It's not wrong, it's not bad. But the thing is, Jesus continually subverts this by favoring the weakest link. And I don't like that. I don't get that. Why should a man like Jean Vanier, for example, who was an influential person, influential in his field, give up everything to work with handicapped, disabled, autistic children? That's career suicide, Why would somebody who has everything going for him or you got everything going for you and yet you give your life to live amongst the poorest of the poor? Christians throughout the ages have done unreasonable things, unreasonable things, things that had nothing to do with this survival of the fittest narrative. Jesus looks at that narrative, survival of the fittest, and he says, I'm going to hang out with those guys. Y'all be strong. I'm with you. I'm not against you. But you don't need me. I'm with these guys. I'm with the poorest. Every time every time I hear about somebody who takes a step of downward mobility or if you can pull up that other side Frank who understands this great reversal, this upside down thing that Jesus does, whenever somebody really really grapples with that and understands it, it makes me uncomfortable. You know why it makes me uncomfortable? Because I I live in the left-hand column. I live very much so in survival of the fittest. Darn right, I'm going to do things to get ahead in the race. Darn right, I'm going to do things to get my kids ahead. Darn right, I'm going to do things to kind of preserve. That's another thing, self-preservation. Self-preservation is not a bad thing, is it? No, it's not. It's not. It's healthy. It's normal. It's normal. And yet Jesus continually presents us this uncomfortable kenosis that Greek word kenosis forgive me for teaching here but that comes from Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 and what it says there is God emptied himself God emptied himself and he became a bond slave What do we do with that It's uncomfortable and I feel like I'm raising more questions than answers again. So we're trying to change our thought patterns and trade it for the counter-narrative of the world. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you now that you know we live in a, we live, we prize survival of the fittest, but what does it mean for us when the Scripture shows us another way where God is continually, constantly, perennially on the side of the weak? What what, what does that mean? What What do I do with that? Okay, third column or third row. Here's another one. This is fun. So when we were doing our woven group on Friday and reviewed the first reframe course, it made me go back and completely change my sermon. It was really good. This third one came from that conversation, keeping up appearances, keeping up appearances. And I'm not talking about the suburban life or trying to. What I'm talking about is we live in a culture today And young people, you want to listen to this as well, very carefully. We live in a culture today of of, uh, facade living, of self-celebrification. We live in a culture where I'll take 20 selfies, 20 selfies, and upload just the one perfect selfie. Why? Because my cheekbones look just about right. I've got my lips pursed in just the perfect way. The sun is glistening. My eyes don't look cross-eyed. I don't look like I look good in that one and so I post that one because that's what I look like at my very best and here's the thing we're trying to convey persona we live in a culture that lives by conveying persona I, come on guys I do it too right? yeah. I saw this I saw this YouTube video sorry this is going to sound a little sexist but there were a bunch of women at a uh, young ladies at a baseball game and they were, take, they were all taking selfies. Nobody was, home run, <laughs> just taking selfies. It's like five innings later, they're still taking selfies. They don't know what the score is. They don't know what's going on. Just taking selfies, the whole game. Beautiful young women and still kind of self-absorbed. And also trying to convey a persona. And I know this, I know this. You know, if you've ever found me online, this is, this is the persona I've created. This, this keeping up appearances and this sense of um, trying to celebrify myself, it's, it's antithetical to Scripture. It's antithetical to the values of the Bible. The values of the Bible, if you can pull that up, is deepening intimacy and vulnerability. There is nothing more counter to the spirit of, of selfie culture and persona culture, there's nothing more antithetical than knowing and being known. Knowing and being known. Really, really being known. How many of you really know me or know each other? I mean, for crying out loud, it took me six years in Houston to finally goof off enough so that you really know I'm just a big goofball. How many of you really know and are being known, and letting people know who you are. Christianity is very much about this, vulnerability, the intimacy. It is the religion where you can put your head on Jesus' bosom and be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. That warmth, that intimacy, that is essential to Christianity, I believe. But if we're only creating personas and you're never being known, you will never break through to intimacy. I like, how, I like how somebody in our woven group, Kate, if I can point you out, I like how she said it. We're trying to let, we're trying to, how did you say it? We're trying to cre- create a life. We're trying to create a life instead of just living. Is that what you said? We're trying to create a life, a second life, a virtual life, instead of just Living. And that, to, that, speaks, that speaks volumes to me because I think the purpose of life is not trying to create a second life or trying to put up a front. The purpose of life is to just live. And in contentedness and happiness, sometimes I think if we didn't have devices, I'm using one right now, and if we didn't have personas or Facebook accounts, we'd be so much happier. Anyway, and that leads to the last one. The last one at least that i have you might have more and that's why there are there are additional blanks at the bottom for you but the last one is immortality i think we live in a culture that prizes living forever it prizes um, a sense of never dying there was a book in 1973 called denial of death by ernest becker sociologist philosopher whatever and I really, I think he's onto something. The older I get, the more I realize I want to live forever. I want to be remembered. I want to write. You know, I have. How many of you journal? Raise your hand. Nobody journals. One person. Hey guys, you got to start journaling. I'm, I'm as your pastor. I'm saying shame on you. Got to start journaling. Okay, as the person who cares for your souls, start journaling. You need it. Anyway, if I, if you look in my closet. I've got, I've got like stacks of journals going back to like 1945, like going back to the dinosaur ages and it's just pages and pages of like poetry or something. No, not really, but where am I going with this? Yeah, why do I save that stuff? Why do I save that? I think subconsciously I save it because when I'm gone, I hope somebody will read it and publish it. We want to live forever. We do things so that we can live forever. And that's what Ernest Becker calls the, the denial of death. It's the immortality project. The, philosophy, the, 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 the phrase he uses is the cause of SWE, The raison d'etre. The reason for being. Why are you doing what you do? Because somehow you want to live forever. Friends, we don't live forever. We don't create a persona that will outlive us or live forever we're not meant to be always thought well of or constantly thought of at all I think the Christian response the Christian counter narrative to the project of immortality is dying well I I know that sounds so morbid but you know I learned about this as I studied you know as I studied Christians throughout history we don't do this in the church today anymore you know that? Because as American Christians, our project is to live forever, to outlast our lives. But back in the day, a big part of Christian formation, you know what it was? It was preparing you for death, even when you were young. Why? Because mortality was much higher. People lived oftentimes, I mean, people died early. And therefore, a big part of Christian training and education was not so much to get you to live and success and prosper and thrive, But it was to prepare you for the imminent reality that we all will die. And to help us in the end to face death bravely, courageously, well prepared, and ready to meet our Maker. With no loose ends. In this day and age, we don't work on our relationships, we don't mend them. Why? We don't forgive, we still resent, we don't repent of our sins. Because I've got 40, 50 more years. And therefore, I can work on it tomorrow. But in the old times, tomorrow could come tomorrow. Death could come at any moment. Have you forgiven your neighbor yet? Have you worked on your relationships yet? Have you told your son that you love him? Or your daughter, have you raised her well? Have you made reconciliation and peace? Have you, are you ready to die? Dying well, I think, is an important Christian... Um, it's not explicitly there in scriptures, at least maybe you can find it, but I, I think it, it's, it's in there. Preparing us, preparing us for the kingdom of God. I'm sorry to end on that, that kind of depressing note, but there's another prayer there. And, and you'll find that prayer also in, your, in your, on the inside flap of your bulletin. I think this is a beautiful prayer. I've said it before. Why is it a beautiful prayer? Because I think it just gets us to live simply. It gets us to just live Simply. And that prayer is simply this, God, be in my head and in my understanding. God, be in my eyes and in my looking. Be in my mouth and in my speaking. Be in my heart and in my thinking. And when it's all over, God, be at my end and at my departing. That last line, be at the end and in my departing, it's just this almost abrupt, just kind of clear-cut, I'm going to die, be there when I die. While I'm living, be with my eyes, my, my head, my heart, ears so God be at our end and at our departing friends you have extra blanks if you want to just think about this on your own think about it on your own fill out what other thought patterns of this world are and how you are going to be a nonconformist how you're going to live the alt life you can work on that on your own but I'll conclude conclude now with a brief story A few years ago, psychologists, psychologist Ruth Berenda and her associates carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers designed to show how a person handled group pressure. The plan was very simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. Subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three separate charts. So you have three charts with lines on them, and, there, and she would point to the longest line. Or she would point to the line, and when she, she identified the longest one, every, all ten kids had to raise their hand. All right? What one person in the group did not know was that nine of the others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line. You all copy, right? So everybody was told, vote for the number two, vote for the second longest line, except for one person. So listen to this. Regardless of the instructions they heard, once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but for the second longest line. The experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. And the quote-unquote, the stooge would typically glance around, <laughs> frown in confusion, and shrug their shoulders and raise their hand with the rest of the group. The instructions were repeated And time after time, the self-conscious 10th person would sit there saying, a short line is longer than a long line simply because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. In other words, this person consistently, time and time again, just went with the other nine. Went with the other nine. (laughs) I don't get it. Okay, just kind of went with the other nine. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75%. So there's hope. One out of four of you will (laughs) not do this. Seventy-five percent of the cases, and it was true of small children and high school students alike. Friends, don't conform to the patterns of this world. I don't know what that means for you. We were talking about this, right, Nick? Like, does it mean I'm going to go vegan? I'm going to stop using paper. I'm going to live off the grid. I'm going to drive an electric vehicle. I'm going to only shop at Goodwill. What does this mean? I don't know what it means. I wish I could just give you a clear answer, but I think in your place, in your life, just think about what it means for you. Think about what choices you make. Let's pray. to give you about 30, 40 seconds to just talk to God on your own. Maybe even more. I'll give you a little bit more time. I want you to reflect. Just respond to Him. Talk to Him. and Use His time to worship God. To respond to Him. God, as I sit here and I look at all of these beautiful people who are endeavoring to live their lives as living sacrifices, as I see these business cards up here at the foot of the cross, I see these people are laying their work down. They're really wrestling, I know. They're really wrestling. A lot of them are at work wrestling with ethical problems, wrestling with this whole call of downward mobility. Instead of upward, they're wrestling with career decisions. They're wrestling. Oh, God, have mercy on them, Lord, because they are putting their business cards, their jobs at the foot of your cross so that you can take care of them. You can show them a beautiful, beautiful way. So show them, I pray. At this time in particular, I want to pray for our three young people. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you guys because you're living in a world that makes you conform, whether you know it or not. It conforms you to the way that we talk, the way we dress. There are things that you see online that just pull and suck you in. And there's hurtful things that make you conform too. I remember when I was young, seeing other guys bully a kid. And I wish and I regret to this day that I never stood up for that kid, but I just went along with the bullying. really wish I didn't do that really wish I didn't do that or maybe for you guys it's something that just all the kids do and you want to conform but my heart goes out to you and I pray that you would find strength and courage courage to stand up and do the good thing the right thing to do the thing that honors God so honor God young people with your lives and Lord we bless you at this time We thank you for this prayer and meditation. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic, missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.